You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. in the farewell speech of Paul, and we're looking at verses 32 through 35 in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. Hear the word of God. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul concludes this farewell speech by entrusting the Ephesian leaders to God's sovereign grace. It is the word of his grace which the Holy Spirit uses to preserve us. It is the means by which we mature in the Lord, the inspired, infallible word of God. It's the primary way in which Christ, as king and head of the church, conveys redeeming and sanctifying grace. And you see, Paul knew the real dangers that threatened the early church. Savage wolves or fierce wolves lurked in the shadows and posed a menace to the spiritual life of God's people. In church history, we have seen how they've been the cause of many making shipwreck of the faith. It's happening in our day. At the same time, the Apostle Paul trusted in the fatherly care of God who was wise and all-powerful, and he told Timothy, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. (laughs) So he was a glass half full kind of guy. And in this farewell address, Paul mentioned his selfless conduct in the gospel ministry. He did not live off the wealth of others, but worked with his own hands. And in so doing, what he did was exemplify for you and I the unselfish trait that is to characterize all Christians, but especially shepherds. Now, that's not to mean that ministers should work without pay. Thank God for that. Paul said that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what Paul is saying here is that leaders should not be greedy or covetous. We're not to enter the ministry with a view to getting rich or amassing wealth. Church officers, in other words, must not be worldly. They must not be materialistic. And we know what that means, I think. An overemphasis on the goods and comforts of this world. An overemphasis. Leaders can enjoy creature comforts. Leaders can enjoy the good gifts of God's providence. But these must not be our aim. 
They must not be our delight or our confidence or our trust. Officers in the church of Jesus Christ must exhibit an evident trust and contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What's more, Paul provided an example of selfless giving and helping the needy. He worked. He worked hard. He worked to support himself and his colleagues in the gospel ministry, and he lived by this saying that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And these words of our Lord can be found nowhere else in Scripture. You can't find them elsewhere. None of the Gospels contain them, though the principle, I think, is plainly evident. And we know that neither all of his words nor all of his deeds are recorded. John even tells us there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So I find no difficulty in believing that these words were from the Lord Jesus himself. I have to be honest, some commentators dispute that. I find no difficulty. These are the words of Christ. And the Apostle Paul is merely repeating them for the benefit of the churches. And the statement breathes the spirit of Christ's life and teaching. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The spirit animating this fallen world is diametrically opposed to this. I think you know that as well as I. The world's motto is simply this. Silly the giver, lucky the receiver. That's the spirit of worldliness. That's the spirit of covetousness and selfishness and lust. Its cravings are never satisfied. It's like leeches or the grave, which are insatiable. And covetousness is a terrible sin. It's the only commandment that's repeated twice. And we all struggle with it, if we're honest, all of us. What a blessed thing it will be when we're delivered from the unquenchable lust that is in the fallen human flesh. Even now, when Jesus comes into the heart, the soul finds everything that it needs, or at least it should. But the remnants of sin, we're taught, are strong. And occasionally, those remnants of sin get the upper hand in our lives. But over time... With prayer and God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, our souls are progressively sanctified and it gets a little bit easier. But it's never gone. So our Lord teaches that greater blessing is enjoyed in the act of giving than in the act of receiving. And let me say that this does not mean that people in need ought to refuse help. That's not what he's saying. There are seasons in life when we need to depend on the generosity of others. It's blessed to receive. We're blessed to enjoy daily God's rich bounty. But at other seasons in life, we may be in a position to lend a hand to others. In other words, Jesus is saying this, I think. It's better for those who can to give than to amass for themselves further wealth and more prosperity. 
I think that's what he's saying. It's not wrong to have wealth. Paul neither envied nor condemned the rich. By God's grace, what he did was to live and work with the kingdom of God as his first priority. And his Herculean efforts were not motivated by the prospect of worldly gain. Here's a man who was content with what he had because he had his priorities arranged properly. He said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he never sought a comfortable living at the expense of the sheep. You flip on that TV, you'll find them all over the place. They fleece the sheep. Giving is more blessed than getting. Getting is blessed. Giving is more so. It's more blessed to do good with what we have, whether that be a lot or a little, than simply to increase it and make it multiply. Now again, let me just say, Jesus did not condemn investment or acquisition or good stewardship. What he did condemn was covetousness, lust, and selfish ambition. And he made it clear that generosity would be a means of great blessing. So I asked the question, why? Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? What makes it about giving that makes it more blessed than getting something? Well, because I think it's an expression of a more excellent, noble, Christ-like spirit. And therefore, it's a closer reflection of God himself than anything else. God gives to all and receives from none. Like Jesus who went about doing good. God is good, according to Scripture. He is naturally Morally, perfectly, infinitely, immutably good. David says you are good and you do good. He's good in and of himself and there's no good above him or beside him or beyond him. If something is good, it's from him, in him and to him. Goodness is the very essence of God's being. And nothing can be added to him and nothing can be taken away from him to make him any more good. He is, as it were, this infinite, limitless ocean of pure, undiluted goodness. And what's fascinating to me is that he takes great pleasure in diffusing his goodness lavishly to others. Jesus says God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. These are common mercies that are proof of God's abundant goodness. And in giving plentifully, he displays his generosity to the world of mankind. He distributes these gifts of providence indiscriminately. Good people, evil people, the worst people. Indeed, even the worst of sinners partake of the many blessings in his creation. These people defy the very God who sustains their lives and bestows comforts upon them. That's how good he is. So insofar as you and I give, we reflect, however dimly, 
the goodness of God. And it doesn't surprise me that the devil questioned God's goodness first when tempting Eve. Did you notice that? That's where he got a toehold. He hates divine goodness. He despises it. So why not strike at the very heart of who God is? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You're kidding, right? Is he really that stingy that he would withhold all of that from you? And as Satan twists and distorts God's command, he puts the Lord's goodness on trial. What God actually said was in no way as restrictive as the devil suggested. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Lavish provision. And there was only one tree from which he must not eat. And at that tree, Adam would be faced with the absolute sovereignty of God. You can eat of anything else, just that one. And that would be where his faith would be tested. That would be where he was to render a verdict and judge the devil. The man must trust the word of God and cast out the evil one by refusing his lie. But you know something, Satan is subtle. And he questioned God's goodness and he sowed even so minutely the seeds of doubt. He's shrewd and he's a cunning liar and he slandered God's character. How could God prohibit you from all of those street trees? How stingy and spiteful. And that's how Satan first introduced doubt about his goodness and he does it every day since. How can God allow so many tragedies in this world? How can you believe in a God that allows those things to happen? And he sows the seeds of doubt. You listen to the noted atheists, and they have no other argument but that. And they question the goodness of God. So I ask, how is the goodness of God manifested in this present age? And then there's three theaters, so to speak. The first is creation, where we see evidence of his goodness in everything that's made. <laughs> to see his bounty, you don't need a telescope or a microscope or a horoscope. Everywhere we look, there is abundant evidence of his goodness. During the first six days after each day's work, God saw that it was good. And with man as the crowning touch, he declared, behold, it's very good. And he didn't do this to be happy. He did this to be generous. From all eternity, God was happy. <laughs> he was blessed and he existed in perfect unity. He wanted to share his goodness with creatures who could enjoy it. So he made heaven and earth that we could glorify and enjoy the creator. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink 
and be joyful. In other words, we can cheerfully enjoy the creation gifts given by the Lord. So creation is good. Second, providence. There we see proof of God's goodness in the daily and seasonal blessings. Sunshine, rain, harvests, crops, marriage, family, life itself, existence, health, wealth, beauty, strength, food, drink, laughter, leisure. Often providence is confusing. I admit that. You can't figure it out, especially when evil seems to prevail. And sometimes we might be tempted to think that God has ceased to be good. But you know something? You and I view providence only in pieces. If we could see the completed puzzle, we would truly rejoice in just how wise and good our Father is. He prayed. When we get there, we're going to have the answers, at least some of them. Paul told the Lystrians, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this entire universe is a theater to exhibit the ongoing expressions of God's goodness. There isn't a creature on earth. There isn't a creature in the universe that hasn't tasted of his bounty. The psalmist says, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. So creation, he's good. Providence, he's good. But then third, of course, in redemption, where we see his goodness supremely demonstrated. He doesn't leave all sinners to perish in their sins. He saves a believing remnant. I don't know why he chooses some and not others. That's up to him. But he saves a believing remnant. In every aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus, God's goodness was clearly evident. Think of it. The infinite, eternal son entering time and space, born of an obscure woman. And then Paul comes along. And he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why, Paul? So that you by his poverty might become rich. The example of Christ's incarnation teaches a powerful lesson. He was rich, equal, in power and glory, with the Father. He was rich in blessedness. And yet for our sakes, he became poor. He was born poor. He lived poor. He died in poverty. And he did this so that we might become rich, rich in love and rich in life and rich in the favor of God, rich in all the covenant blessings that we don't deserve rich in fellowship with the Lord and made joint heirs of glory. You know the story. In his life, he obeyed the law perfectly, and in his death, he satisfied the just, of justice of God. 
And as we receive his righteousness by faith, we are saved from the wrath to come. Or as we looked at in senior high Sunday school, we escape the wrath and curse of God. And it's all of grace. God provides it all. He gives, we receive. It's all of grace. He provides Christ as the mediator to satisfy the demands of justice. You know something? He could have demanded that of us. He could have demanded that you and I pay that price. He could have left us without a mediator. And you're going to pay it down to the very last penny. But all he requires of us is that we sh- to share in Christ's victory is faith. Just faith. And even that's his gift. <laughs> the Spirit works that faith in us. And therefore, it's all of grace. We simply receive it. Having been born from above by the Holy Spirit, we're forever dwelt by his, indwelt by his presence, and he gives us this new life so that we can believe and receive Jesus into our hearts. So there you have it. All partake of God's goodness in creation. Many partake of his goodness in providence, and believers partake of his goodness in redemption. It's the sincere Christian who receives the cream of God's goodness. I don't care who you are. If you're a Christian, the cream of God's goodness. The earth he created supplies you with what you need. The history he has pledged to work together everything for your good. And in redemption through Christ, he forgives your sin and accepts you as righteous in his sight. That's good. Don't ever be tempted to question his goodness. So let's try to frame our hearts that you and I may be more ready to give than to receive. Because as Paul says, if the readiness is there, if you're willing, it's acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. That's how you and I resemble and reflect the divine goodness of God. Insofar as we are charitable to others, we bear a resemblance to him. Charitable with our time, our talents, our treasure. Giving comes closer to the nature of God who generously gives to all. He receives nothing. He needs nothing. He's pleased to give. And we see that expressed in Jesus who went about doing good. What did he do? He healed the sick. He delivered the oppressed. He preached good news to the poor. And as you and I feed the hungry and clothe the naked, and visit the sick and the imprisoned, we resemble Christ. And to be like Jesus, who is blessed forever, is to be ourselves truly blessed. And and is it not an honor, an honor to be instruments of providence in supporting others? You know, God could help them without you and me. He doesn't need us. But he gives the honor to us of helping others. Herein lies the true advantage of having wealth. Some of you have wealth, and I'm thankful to God for it. But here's the advantage of having wealth. You can help others. Our Lord said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers and a preacher, said this. 
Christ does not say if you fast or if you pray or if you prophesy or if you be learned, you shall be like your heavenly father. That's not what he said. But if you be loving, if you be merciful, if you distribute to the necessities of others, then you are like him. And moreover, it's not enough that we simply refrain from injuring and doing harm to others. Our ladies know this well. Guys, we're not wired this way. If I don't hurt you, we're okay. Our ladies are proactive, typically, in doing good. You see, our duty involves more than just refraining from hurting somebody. It involves doing good to others, helping others, And giving may at first seem like a loss, but you know something? The investment pays dividends. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And I think what our Lord is teaching us here is that the delight of doing good far outweighs the material cost of helping others. And I think this is especially true in two very important things, giving and forgiving. We're told, first of all, with giving, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. It's been called the golden rule, as you know. It's based upon the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we were made to delight as much in doing good to others as in receiving from them. Even more so because here Jesus says it's more blessed to do so. It comes closer to the nature of God. And as children resemble their parents, so Christians ought to resemble God. Isn't this what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 41? Are you familiar with that? Listen to what it says at the very beginning. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. As the Lord shows goodness and mercy to us, so we show this to others. Ultimately, I think the principle boils down to the attitude, the readiness If you desire to help according to your ability, God is pleased with it. I don't care if it's $10 or a million dollars. If you give what is in your power to give, then the Lord is truly satisfied. And not everybody can give financially. That's okay. But you can give of your time, and many of you do. And you can give of your talents, and many of you do. Consider the poor widow who put two small copper coins in the offering box. Nobody even gave it a thought. It amounted to a penny. And Jesus says in commenting on this, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Because they all contributed out of their abundance. Now, he didn't say that was wrong. He's just comparing. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, 
She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You've heard of the Dead Sea. It's dead. (laughs) And do you know why it's dead? It's so salty that it contains no fish or plant life whatsoever. It's a dead sea. And that's due to the absence of outlets. Water pours in, nothing flows out. Many inlets combined with no outlets is a perfect recipe for a dead sea. And it's no different with the Christian. Many inlets, many sermons, many conferences, many this, many that, no outlets means a dead spirit. That's giving, but secondly, in forgiving. We forbear with one another and forgive each other, which is vital. Even as God in Christ has forgiven us, so we are to forgive each other. And this is probably one of the most difficult things in the Christian life, forgiveness. No human being, though, can wrong you as much as you have wronged the Lord. Nobody. And in Jesus, he pardons all your sins and cleanses you of all of your unrighteousness. And should we not then freely and easily and consistently forgive each other? We're sinners. We're going to offend one another. You know what marriage is? It's the union of two sinners. Nobody's compatible. That's the point. We learn to love one another. In his story, Jesus told of the king who forgave the servant 10,000 talents. And that same man goes out and he throttles his friend who owed him 100 denarii. And the difference is like millions compared to tens. And his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So if somebody asks you to forgive them, it's not only your privilege, it's your obligation to do so. You don't have a choice. As I said, it's a great honor to be instruments of the divine goodness. And insofar as we do that, The image of God shines forth in a very special way. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. Love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because it comes closer to the nature of God than anything else. And let me just close with this, that our giving and our forgiving will be noted by the king on the day of judgment. The Lord Jesus himself gives us a description of that process that will take place at the end of time. He who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men will judge the world in righteousness. And the king will sit upon his throne and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. 
As wheat and weeds are separated at the harvest and as good fish and bad fish are separated on the shore, he'll distinguish between believers and unbelievers with perfect precision. So exact will he be that the humblest, most obscure believer or saint will not be lost in the crowd of sinners. And the most convincing sinner or unbeliever will not be lost in the crowd of saints. Perfect precision. And with believers on his right and with unbelievers on his left, he'll begin to judge. And that's when the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And I don't want you or I to think that somehow these good works earn happiness in heaven. That's not the point. Man does not merit blessing, but God promises blessing in Christ. These works that he's talking about here provide evidence of true grace at work in the heart. That's how a sincere Christian lives. He's willing to give. You've heard of John Wesley. John Wesley became one of England's wealthiest citizens. That might surprise you. When he first started out in his first year of ministry, John Wesley gave 7% of his meager income to the poor. At the end of his public ministry, when he was one of the wealthiest men in England, John Wesley gave 98% of his income to those in need. 98%. In his description of the final judgment, Jesus illustrates how true saving faith works by love. And he makes it plain that on that last day, every good deed will be remembered. And then the truth of Christ's teaching will become clear and plain to all. The story is told of Charles Spurgeon and his wife. I'm sure you've heard of the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon and his wife refused, they sold, but they refused to give away the eggs that their chickens laid. Even their relatives, their family members were told, you may have these eggs only if you pay for them. And some labeled the Spurgeons as greedy, selfish. And Mr. and Mrs. Spurgeon accepted the criticisms without defending themselves. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died that the full story was finally revealed. All the profits from the sale of those eggs went to support two elderly widows. And the Spurgeons did not let their left hand know what their right hand was doing. They endured the criticisms in perfect silence. How about you? Have you discovered how blessed it is to give? 
I'm a work in progress. I have a long way to go. But here's my prayer, that God would enlarge my heart because Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and you do good. And we see that in creation and we experience it in providence, but nowhere do we see it more manifestly than in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death. We do pray that you'll enlarge our hearts and help us to resemble you in being willing to give of our time, talents, and treasures to those in need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.